Welcome to this episode of Beads Podcast, a weekly reflection on church history with Dr. Michael A.G. Haken. Dr. Haken serves as the chair and professor of church history at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he is on the core faculty of Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. He's also a fellow of the Royal Historical Society in recognition of his contributions to historical scholarship. Join us now as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people. Well, I'm back here with Dr. Michael A.G. Haken, and we are continuing our conversation about church history and about him as a, sc- a scholar. Uh, a couple episodes ago, we looked at his conversion and those who influenced him. And so this week, we will continue with some questions. So how has church history helped you in your own own spirituality? Uh, are there any specific examples that you've picked up that you uh, use, or specifically how how has men before you, men and women before you, helped you in your own spirituality? Well, I think um, on, on the large scale, studying the history of the church has helped ground me as a Christian. Um, it's given me a sense of continuity, a sense of rootedness, which I think we all need, a sense that the Christian faith has deep, deep roots. And the Christian faith um, has encompassed a multitude of ethnicities, uh, languages, obviously, uh, historical contexts, and um, that uh, I'm not the first to, to think along these lines and uh, to, to walk the Christian road. I think the study of church history has helped ground me as a Christian. And then obviously, uh, there have been specific figures that I've been drawn to, to study and read on and reflect on. Um, in the 20th century, Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, for example, who has been very helpful in, in my thinking through well, what is preaching and why is it so central to the Christian faith? Um, a decision he had to make in the 1930s, 38, I believe, when he was offered the position at Westminster Chapel, where he eventually went, and also the principalship of Bala, uh, a, a theological college in Bala in North Wales. Um, how he made that decision, which Ian Murray in his first volume of his fabulous two-volume biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones lays out the decision-making, that was very helpful to me at the time. And uh, since, in times I've had to make significant decisions that you recognize are turning points in your Christian life. Um, Samuel Pierce, in his spirituality of marriage, in his passion for the advance of the gospel, has deeply shaped my thinking about the vital importance of mission and the necessity of having, if you are married, a solid marriage, uh, not some sort of half-baked marriage like George Whitfield uh, had, uh, which I think was a hindrance to him. He should never have gotten married. Um, he, he really wanted a, a servant to run his house rather than a wife. Um, and then George uh, John Wesley was even worse. I mean, his marriage was a complete disaster. Um, but Pierce gave me a, a, a model of what Christian marriage looked like. And uh, we know that through his, through his love letters to his wife, about 70 of which are preserved. Um, Andrew Fuller. Um, Andrew, the depth of theological expertise in Fuller's um, 
mind and his writings is just a tremendous help to me as a Christian, not only thinking through issues of Trinitarian theology, um, issues of what does it mean to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, um, et cetera, et cetera, but also in terms of recognizing that Baptists have had some tremendous models. And I, we're, I think we're sometimes given the impression by other Reformed Christians, most of whom are Presbyterian, you know, that basically they're, 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 the, they're the smart ones. And maybe Baptists have done a lot, a lot of church planting, but, you know, if you're really smart, you're going to become a Presbyterian. And uh, that's why all the Presbyterian books have been reprinted. And I remember reading, it was Paul Helm in the 1960s, said, that, you know, if, if you've got a choice between reprinting a book by a Presbyterian or reprinting one by a Baptist, well, you're always going to choose the Presbyterian because the Presbyterians just said things a lot better. And they're just, they're better theologians. And Paul Helm was a Baptist, which is a really an astonishing statement. And uh, I, there's something in me disagreed with that. The first time I read it back here, probably about 30 years ago, I thought, I mean, uh, of all the Baptists being kind of half-baked theologically, and don't they have any brains? And maybe they're great activists, but aren't they any think? Are there no thinkers? Well, there are. And um, so uh, somebody like Andrew Fuller has been of enormous help to me um, in recognizing that becoming a Baptist, I haven't committed intellectual suicide. And then obviously other figures like Basil of Caesarea, um, just his vision of, of the Trinity, Augustine, just his remarkable grasp of Trinitarian thought, but also uh, his confidence in the sovereignty of God um, in his own personal life, but also in church history as illustrated in the City of God. So that's just a, a few examples of, of how church history is, has helped me uh, spiritually and theologically. Well, thank you. For those of us who are aspiring historians, what advice do you have for us as we seek to aim to be, become one and to do it with excellence? Yes. Um, well, first of all, I, I, I do think that anybody who is aspiring to be a church historian um, that the word church is very important in that statement. You're, you're, I, I'm not, I, I don't normally call myself a historian of Christianity. Historians of Christianity, I tend to think of them as people who are in religious studies departments, and they may or may not be Christian, but they're not necessarily doing what they do for the sake of the church. I'm a, I'm a church historian. I'm, I'm writing history, even if it's academic, fairly academic, and some of it obviously has to be and is, uh, it's still for the sake of the, the church. And so that's the first thing, that you have to get your orientation right, that uh, as a church historian, you're called to serve the church uh, to the glory of God. Uh, secondly, um, uh, I, don't think you, the, the, I don't think you can skimp on getting as much uh, training as you can and in the best possible way. That might mean you know, the best possible school. It definitely means the, the best possible mentors. Mentors are more important than the school. So, you know, if you went to study church history at, say, school X that is in the Ivy League, well, you, you might get all kinds of kudos because of the school. But who you study under 
They're going to shape you. And if I think, uh, a church historian, you must you have to study under somebody who is both uh, excellent in as a historian, but also also a person who is committed to serving the church and is a professing Christian. And then uh, thirdly, you need to read widely. Um, I think one of the failings that sometimes church historians have had in the past is that they have been locked into simply looking at church questions, but just as they do not live simply in a church building or within the confines of a church communion, but they live their lives in the world and are shaped by that world from all all kinds of things, be it um, presuppositions that everybody in their culture embraces, that they too embrace because nobody recognizes them as presuppositions. Some of them are major, some of them minor. One of my favorite examples is always, you know, having grown up as a teenager in the 70s, late 60s, 70s, so I'm a child of the 60s. Um, uh, when I was growing up, uh, the color, the colors orange and brown were in. Somewhere in the late 70s, they were out. So much out, they were out for years. Uh, I know, I'm not sure brown is yet in, but orange was definitely out for decades. So I remember the first when I first started teaching at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in the, the early part of the first decade of this millennium in around 2003-2004, uh, having classes in what was known as the Mullins Room. The Mullins Room is on the third floor of the James Pettigrew Boyce uh, Library, and it's a seminar room. But I remember the, going into it the first time, it's, it doesn't look like this now, they've renovated it, but it had this brilliant orange carpet and these orange chairs and your instinctive reaction was absolutely, ugh, this is so passe and it's absolutely ugly as all get out. And you realize, I realized because I had grown up in that world as a very young teenager, that somebody had modeled that, that room in the 1960s and they'd never changed the carpet or the chairs, or the upholstery in the chairs. And it looks so out. But why did it look out? Why did it look so passe and so um, uh, antiquated? Like, who, 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 gave, who gave me the idea that orange was out? These sorts of things, I find these sorts of things fascinating because uh, we breathe in all of this cultural air, which shapes the way we do, we think, shapes the questions we ask. And so that's why I emphasize that when you're studying church history, uh, say you're studying an era, so the era that I've studied the most probably is the long 18th century. And so I read everything in that period I can get my hands on, you know, reading about uh, architecture, how they fashioned their houses, how they ate their meals, um, uh, clothing, um, all of these things that we tend to think they're not important, but they are important. And when you read Baptist literature from this period, you see these things. Um, the illustrations they use are drawn from their world. So, for instance, one of the favorite illustrations is that the church is a garden enclosed. They get that from two sources. They get it from Song of Solomon, which they read as did you know, generations of Christians as a love song between Christ and his people. But they also got that image from late 17th, 17th, very late and late 17th century culture, 
moving into the early 18th century, when gardens were enclosed, closed by walls or by hedgerow. And um, the enclosed garden was a, was a feature of regular life. And when the, the church is described then as a garden enclosed, what would come immediately to mind would be the idea of safety and the idea of security and the idea of privacy and the idea of um, um, uh, a place uh, to go to to find refreshment, um, etc. In the course of the 18th century, there was a whole new style of gardening that came into a vogue and uh, uh, enclosed gardens were no longer in vogue and people started knocking down the walls, knocking down the hedgerow and opening up so people could see a larger vista. But you, you don't understand that unless you've read something about the history of gardening in the 18th century. And so uh, I think that potential church historians need to read widely. Um, of course, they need to read as much as they can on the area that they're, they're, re- they're focused on, be it 18th century. In my own PhD studies, it was the 4th century. And um, uh, you can't read widely enough because in, in numerous areas, you'll find material that can help you in your reflection. So those are three things. One is the importance of, of mentors um, and uh, the importance of, of reading widely um, and the importance of, of being determined right from the get-go that you're doing this for the church. It's not a job so much as it's, 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 it's serving, serving the church. Yeah, that, that's really helpful, Dr. Haken. So let's, let's try to be as practical as possible. Say I have... Someone is looking to put together overview of someone in church history's life. So say it's Andrew Fuller. And so here I am, a student looking to, to write a, a biographical sketch of Andrew Fuller. Where, where would you recommend I start? Well, you have to start with, um, you've got two sorts of sources. You've got primary sources. So whatever primary sources you can get hold of, you need to, to, you need to gather uh, that'll include uh, formal tracts, published tracts. It'll include uh, letters. It'll include diaries, whether published or unpublished. It'll include uh, contemporaries' accounts of the individual. So that's really the, the bottom line. The primary sources are the critical thing. Uh, the primary sources uh, hopefully don't lie unless the author has purposely... Um, uh, crafted them in such a way as to give a false impression. Uh, the primary sources are always there to check every interpretation. The second thing you need to do then is you need to make yourself familiar with the secondary source literature on the individual. In some cases, like Andrew Fuller, um, for many years, it was there wasn't tons. Uh, there was a number of biographies from the 19th century. And then in the 20th century, there was only one biography. And virtually nothing on his thought, and that's changing. Um, if you happen to choose somebody like Jonathan Edwards, well, you know, I, I was I was going to say good luck, but uh, uh, at the, that, that, there's an enormous amount on Edwards. And if you choose Augustine, well, good night, because you, you've you've got three to four hundred items that are coming out every year, and so you've got an enormous amount. Obviously. New biographies of Augustine are being written on a regular basis um, and studies of Augustine. So 
uh, that isn't so daunting as preventing anybody from doing anything. But for somebody like me that is a detail person, it is daunting. And so maybe that's one of the reasons why I tend to choose more obscure figures to write on because there, is a, there isn't as much material. But that also has its drawback because then you have to, you have to guess about what might have been going on in their lives, their, their thought and events and so on. But the first thing is the primary sources. And then the second thing is the secondary literature. And then the third thing, which you really want to be doing at the same time as both of those discussions, both of those investigations, you want to be reading in the period. You want to have the context. So just as, for instance, I've been reading in uh, the book of Hebrews, chapter 10 and verses uh, 19 and following, um, that, that passage where there's an exhortation uh, to hold fast the confession and not to fall away, um, that comes within the context, number one, of a larger block where he's been talking about what Jesus has done for us. And then an even larger block, namely the letter itself. And so to understand the exhortation in chapter 10, 19 and following, I need to understand the immediate context, then the larger context. But then I also need to understand how does this fit into the New Testament? So to understand Andrew Fuller's life, with the example you chose, I need to understand... So if I'm reading a text of Fuller, I, I need to, to understand that in the context, what was the historical context that drew it forth from his pen? And then what is it, what about his life? And then what about the larger 18th century? And so there are really three kind of steps. The primary sources, the secondary sources that deal with the individual, but then the larger context that has to be borne in mind. And now what point should, at what point should I look at the secondary resources? Should I be doing that alongside or should I saturate myself in the primary sources and try to get as much uh, from them before I start to read other people? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a difficult question. And there are different, different perspectives. For some, the emphasis is, no, no, don't, don't even look at the secondary sources until you've read all the primary sources. If you look at the secondary sources, they'll bias your, your, your perspective. And I think there's truth to that. Uh, secondary sources themselves are coming from a context, and you need to be aware of that too. So when um, you know Andrew Fuller is being read by the late Victorians, that's different from people reading him in the mid 20th century. Um, people at the end of the 20th century, they they all have their own concerns, their own context that are shaping their reading of Fuller. And so there's much to be said that we read the primary sources first, but the secondary sources can help orient the questions. And because some of those who are writing the secondary sources have spent a lot of time reading Fuller, they can help orient you in terms of your reading of the primary sources. What are the most important areas of the primary sources that need to be read? What are the questions you need to bring to the primary sources? So in some ways, I would say that the, 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 two, issue, the two events reading the primary sources, reading the secondary sources have to go hand in hand. And I suspect that that's normally the way that I do it. Although uh, there are times when I just abandon the secondary sources, so to speak, and just plunge back into the primary sources. And so um, uh, whatever they, the secondary sources might have been, I try to get a fresh look at the primary sources. I try to, I try to listen to what 
the concerns of, say, Fuller are, one of the things he keeps bringing up, uh, one of the dangers for any historian is to basically read the past in light of the present. In other words, I, I've got some concerns. So, for instance, when I was in the charismatic movement, um, I remember reading, you know, about the history of glossolalia. Well, that was important to me because I was in the charismatic movement, but you, you soon discover hardly anybody's interested in glossolalia in the history of the church. Uh, you know, it occurs, obviously, in the apostolic era. There are some sparse accounts in the second century. And then you really have to go all the way down to probably to the 17th century uh, with the uh, French prophets uh, or the 18th century French prophets before you find it again. And then scattered examples, uh, Edward Irving in the mid early 19th century, some uh, proto-Pentecostal groups in the late 19th century, and then Pentecostalism. But Pentecostalism is so pressed upon our thought that it becomes a, an overriding concern. And um, it really isn't for, you know, somebody like John Wesley. For Wesley, it's, um, for example, it's, uh, it's, it, it's an issue that he, he grapples with in relation to exegesis, but it's not something in his world. And so when I come to ask the question, so what did Wesley think of glossolalia? I have to recognize that, I have, and this has to be borne in mind, that Wesley himself is not taken up with that question. It's a minor issue for him. It's something that has ceased. And um, in our world, because of the claims of Pentecostalism, the charismatic movement, uh, and the so-called third wave, the vineyard, um, we can't so easily dismiss those claims. They, they, they claim that they've the glossolalia is, is alive and well. Um, so uh, I have to be very aware of my own context uh, when I'm reading the past. But... Uh, and uh, the context of other secondary authors. But as much as I can, I have to try to enter the world of the author I'm reading so I can hear what his concerns are. What are, what are the questions he's asking and the answers he's giving? That's really helpful. Thank you. So you seem to be very productive in, in a sense of you always have new content coming out. It, it At least it seems that way. And so the question I think everyone has is how, how do you do it? How do you how do you uh, bring out so much content? Yeah, I think part of it's constitutional. Um, I, I just I you know I had a father who was uh, very 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 focused in his case on electrical engineering, and I think that kind of focus has come to me. Um, obviously, in my early years, I, there were other things I was interested in, so you know, football or soccer, and cricket in England, and then when I came to Canada. You know, I was involved in playing football, soccer, and football, American, fo Canadian football. Um, I can't remember the last time I watched a football event. Um, I do watch some soccer. Um, I don't really have any hobbies, so I'm not, I'm not spending my time on anything. I mean, you know, if I, I jokingly say, you know, my hobby is my family. So, um, you know, I, 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 I'm, I've never been any good with my hands. So I'm not into gardening. I'm not into woodworking. I can't make anything, which is a real drawback because I have to pay for everything to be made, right? Um, the time I spend, I spend, you know, I've got free time. I spend it with my wife. 
So she goes shopping. I go shopping. A lot of men don't like shopping. I like shopping. I, I maybe because my mother used to take me shopping with her, and I got dragged around, you know, to all these stores, women's clothing stores, and all that. And um, I, I've got no problems. I'm with my wife, and she's interested in these things, so I go. Um, so I have, comparatively speaking, I have a lot of time that I'm able to devote, and um, so. Um, and then I, I learned pretty early on to write everything down. And I have a full manuscript. Every time I speak, pretty well every time I speak, I've got a full manuscript. So that can be utilized. You know, years ago when you had to handwrite everything, it wouldn't have been as easy. But now, I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's like a gold mine because it's all typed up. You've got it. You can easily adapt it to another form, either popular you get rid of all the footnotes. I always include footnotes in everything and I document everything because you never know when you might need to use it again um, or go back to that source again. Um, with one fell swoop, you know, there's a global change in uh, Microsoft Word that you can get rid of all the footnotes and you've got something that's popular. So um, I think that's part of it. And certainly after you've been teaching for a long time, you've got all, you know, just think about all the courses I've taught and all the notes I've got, and I've got full full lectures of virtually everything going back 20 years or more. Um, in the 90s, up to the 90s, I was still doing a lot, uh, a lot of handwriting. And then it was a godsend when we, we they, they uh, when we, when Heritage was founded. In fact, it might have been, it might have been at the old Central Baptist Seminary around 1991 because of uh, budget cuts, they told us that we couldn't use the secretary, uh, Marina Coleman anymore to type up all our stuff. So I had to learn uh, to type my own stuff. Uh, got a computer, you know, a Commodore. No, it wasn't a Commodore 64. It was a, it was, um, a, uh, must've been a, a Hewlett Packard. It was a, a 264 or 364, I forget. And I uh, began to, reinvigorate my typing skills, which were never any good. Uh, when I came to Ancaster High and Vocational School, which I talked about last time, um, I was in 9E, which was the class of the tech boys, but also with all the young women, well, a few young women who were taking secretarial skills and home economics, which young men at that time never took. But I took, I didn't want to do any of the tech boy stuff. So I, I joined a class of women, young women uh, doing typing. And my first term, I got 45, I failed. Second term, it was around 35. Third term was about 25. I mean, they took, they took off marks every time you made a mistake. And I, I was just, I was screwed. And so I never learned how to <laughs> type. And I had to take the course because I had to do something. You had to take an elective. And it was either that or doing the tech subjects. I, I couldn't do them. I couldn't do art, couldn't do music. So I was doing typing and it was dreadful. But I wish I'd paid attention because I didn't realize, you know, uh, uh, 20 years down the road, I was going to need those typing skills. But in the providence of God, we lost our, our secretarial help in the early 90s. And I started learning how to type everything. And that's, that's been enormously helpful in being able to be productive. Uh, thank you. Uh, if, if you don't mind sharing, what does a day, a typical day in the life, or I know because your schedule is changing, a week in the life, 
look like for Dr. Michael Haken? Well, I, I do a fair amount of teaching. So, so let's take this past week. Uh, so I taught Latin Monday night from 7 till 8.15. And then Tuesday afternoon from 2 to 5, I taught church history uh, 2. Uh, Wednesday, uh, normally uh, there is a PhD colloquium I should be a part of, but because that's been the one free day that uh, my wife, my wife's had some physical issues, so we've had doctor's appointments. Uh, Thursday, I teach two to two to five an apologetics course. Uh, Thursday evening, Latin seven to eight, and then Friday one to five, I do a PhD seminar at Southern Seminary on Andrew Fuller. So there's a fair amount of teaching during the academic year. Um, all my teaching normally is in the afternoon or the evening because I tend to stay up late. So I'm rarely in bed before two. And so I stay up to two. Um, in some ways it's nice. Uh, everybody's gone to bed, it's quiet. I can do writing, uh, reading. Um, so there's a fair amount of reading I'm doing. I normally am reading four or five books at a go. So right now I'm reading a book on political theology by Ron Dart on the high Tory tradition in Canada. I'm also reading um, uh, some things on Timothy of Baghdad, who was Patriarch of Baghdad in the uh, late 700s, early 800s. And um, I have picked up a new biography on Benedict the Sixteenth uh, by a German um, a journalist. Although at the level he's writing, it looks like he looks like he's uh, he's must have had some very good historical training. It really is very very good. It's not a journalistic typical journalistic uh, biography at all. It's a very very in depth biography. So when you have these readings, are are you scheduling through the day? Do you know when you're going to be reading and what you're going to be reading? Or you just pick them up as you have a few minutes? Or how's that look? Yeah, sometimes it's as I have a few minutes. So if I'm waiting for dinner, um, I, I'll always have a couple of books on the kitchen table. So I've got a book on the Spartans there. I've got um, Edmund Burke's comment, uh, Reflections on the French Revolution. Uh, that's what I've got Benedict the Sixteenth now. Um and uh, but normally I read that sort of stuff late at night before I go to bed. Um, so it's a transitional point of view from normally what I've been studying to that sort of material. Um, I'm not always successful, but I really shouldn't be reading online, you know, Facebook and that, because that just gets all kinds of issues raised in your mind that don't make it easy to sleep and who knows what they do to your dreams. Um, so um, normally that sort of, uh, what, what I would describe as extracurricular reading is done uh, late at night. So you're looking at one or two in the morning. Lovely. Thank you. That's uh, I've always wondered. So thank you for, that was a selfish question. Really? I <laughs> pleasure. Moving along here, so you write a lot about obscure people in church history. You, you sort of mentioned this already, but why why in the world would you do this? Well, I do it for a number of reasons. Number one, I think God's interested in 
God's interested in these so-called obscure people or little people or people on the margins. They're, 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 they're important to God. Uh, Jesus died for these people. Um, their lives were important to themselves and those who loved them and knew them. And th for a variety of reasons, uh, sometimes unwarranted, sometimes because we don't have source material, they've been completely forgotten. And I, I found myself interested in this, you know, when I did a lot more uh, uh, preaching in the, from the Bible. You know, I'd be interested in people like Anesiphorus or Timothy or Priscilla and Aquila. So I've got a whole study on Priscilla and Aquila or a study of Anesiphorus. Anesiphorus is one of my, one of my Bible heroes, even though he's only mentioned in 2 Timothy, two places, chapter 1, chapter 4. Um, and so I think that kind of sparked an interest in other minor figures in church history. Um, I, I, I just, I don't like the idea of, you know, okay, so we've, we've got, you know, tens of thousands of books on Augustine and Luther. So why do I need to put another one out there? Um, no, I have written on fairly famous figures. I've got three books on Jonathan Edwards. I've written on George Whitfield, two books. So I, it's, it's not the case that I have nothing on these larger figures. And obviously you have to study these larger figures because they are, they're not large figures for no reason. But I, I do think that church historians, uh, I, I know one church historian who, with whom I have, uh, for whom I have great admiration, and he's a very good historian. But he basically has said he just won't write on minor figures because nobody wants to read about them. Nobody's, nobody's going to buy their, uh, if he writes a book on, you know, uh, figure X, who was a small time Baptist pastor, nobody's ever going to read that book. And um, why would he waste his time then on writing about that? And so he's going to write on, you know, uh, this big name and that big name. And if you look at his uh, publishing record, that's what he's done. He's written on, you know, about half a dozen really big names in American the history of American Christianity. And I, I just find myself in disagreement with that, that kind of perspective. Somebody has to write on these smaller figures. Otherwise, they will be completely forgotten. And um, if they belong to that communion of which I am a part, namely the Baptist tradition, then I should be, as a Baptist historian, uh, remembering some of these people uh, number one, they're obscure, so no, it's unlikely others are going to remember them. And if we Baptists don't remember them, they'll never be remembered. And some of these people have much to teach us. And so I, I do tend to write more on the people on the margins. I, I found a quote recently that history is richer on the margins. I, I don't know if that's true, but I like the idea that there is this richness on the margins you can't get in the central spaces. Mm -hmm. One thing I've been thinking about is, as I've been doing my own research, is I'm, you know, finding, we're finding letters, we're finding journals, we're finding uh, things published uh, in Baptist magazines. Uh, and these are basically the primary sources that, that we're acquiring in 21st century. But so we rely on people's notes, their journals, their letters uh, for studying church history. So what do you do specifically to help future historians to study church history of Dr. Michael Haken's context, not not necessarily of 
training people to be better historians, but leaving things behind to help future historians learn about us. And, and what also can we as regular people do to help future historians? Well, I think uh, we have to encourage churches, first of all, to make sure that their records are stored properly, they are kept properly. Uh, um, I'm amazed, have, uh, having done probably a dozen uh, local church histories, um, I'm amazed at the shabbiness with which Baptist churches, and I don't think it's only Baptists, but they're the ones I'm most familiar with, have kept records. So I remember one church in Toronto, 125 years. The last 40, uh, probably 30 years before the present pastor were really very poorly documented. And uh, I remember uh, dreading the celebration that we were going to launch this book because I knew that the former pastor would be there. And I, I was dreading him coming up to me and saying, you know, why did you only write two pages on me? Well, I only wrote two pages on him because he didn't leave any records. I, I don't know what he was doing with the minute books. I, the minute books don't exist. There's, there's no indication of what he was up to for a large period of, that, of his time as a pastor. And um, that's that's really shabby, um, uh, and is a sure way that we are forgetting our history is by failing to secure for the future the records of the past, what will, what will then be the past, namely that what is now the present. So I think uh, Christian leaders in churches need to make sure that they have records, they're being kept. Now this is there's an added problem to this: the whole digital world. So I I think it's helpful if you print out. Uh, what is important on hard copy paper. Um, you know, because of the whole digital revolution, you know, it's been heralded and people think, you know, we're, we're saving paper, et cetera, et cetera. But we're, we're, we may be saving paper, but we're losing the past because unless we have the means by to access the digital, the digital content um, of uh, these uh, various forms, um, we're going to lose them. So, for instance, if if you don't have a cassette tape, you you can't access cassettes or eight tracks or reel to reel. Uh, I just saw recently an ad for uh, a reel to reel machine, which some of you may not even know what that is. You need to Google it and look it up. A reel to reel machine somewhere around 1963, and the ads the ad had a picture of a of a guy with a reel to reel. And the, the, the headline was, something you can leave for your great-grandson who he'll be able to uh, play. <laughs> like, I, I don't know if anybody really thought that that was a serious possibility or whether it was simply a, an advertising ploy. But uh, I'm sure there are people listening to this who have no idea what a reel-to-reel -reel is or have never seen a reel-to-reel. -reel. I came at the end of it. I remember one of my friends getting a reel-to-reel -reel, um, machine and playing, um, uh, might have been Cream or Led Zeppelin on Reel to Reel. I mean, man, uh, it was awesome. And we thought, man, this is the state of the art. Well, 15 years later, it was junk. And the, the problem is that you know, a lot of the, the documentation we've got is filed in formats that are no longer accessible. So I kept for a long time the first computer I got, the hard drive, 264. And eventually I just chucked it because it was just taking up space because I kept thinking, you know, maybe I can access that stuff one day. But when I've actually tried to use floppy files, some of these early Word documents, you can't open them anymore. 
Now, I'm sure somebody can open them, but we are creating a, a real problem. And of course, if you've got a hard copy, I can still re read the files that Spurgeon wrote or, you know, somebody in the 40s wrote or in the 70s, 1970s, whatever. So I, I do recommend that very important documentation be kept in hard copies and that it be kept somewhere where people know where it is and where there is in local churches um, um, a system of handing it on. Um, second, um, valuable documents need to be placed on either given to an archival deposit. And in, in the area where I live, that would probably be either one of two one of two locales, it would either be a place like Heritage Theological Seminary, which have a small archives, or even better, the archives at McMaster Divinity College. But of course, they're, they're, they're only going to take Baptist material. Um, or leave it with uh, the city records office, you know, the uh, Hamilton City Library, um, their archival material, that if it relates to Hamilton. Uh, usually, uh, cities and counties are very eager to take uh, material that relates to any sphere of history, uh, because uh, who knows who might ask for that down the road. Um, and so material needs to be either given or placed on um, on long-term loan. So it's, 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 technically, it's a gift. Uh, technically, it's, in actuality, it's a gift. But technically, it's only on loan. So if the if the church wants to take it back at any time, they can. But basically, you've got somewhere where it's going to be filed, where it can be resourced, researched, and where it's safe. What about just regular lay people who aren't, you know, leading a church or something like that? Well, in their case, again, I think it's very valuable to preserve material that could be used by historians down the road. Um, you know, so for instance, today, just today, I recommended to another historian uh, the study of a group of letters as well as business documents from a family called the Stutterds, S-T-U-T-T-E-R-D, um, who were a Baptist family in Yorkshire and Lancashire in the uh, 1700s. And the, the leading figures of the family, and there were about five generations, were woolen merchants. And what we have is the, the letters and accounts of people like Jabez Stuttered and Thomas Stuttered, who would go to the south of England uh, to uh, areas where there were lots of sheep and would uh, uh, seek to purchase wool that would then be transformed into fabric in, northern, in the northern factories. Um, but we have all kinds of letters that these men wrote back to their families about their lives. They were Baptists um, uh, that are just absolutely insightful about what it was like to live as a Baptist, not as a leader. Some of them become Baptist pastors. There's at least two Baptist pastors in the family. But many of them are just, they're godly Christian woolen merchants. And it just gives you another dimension on Baptist life. And somebody along the road had the wisdom to preserve those letters. And um, so, again, um, if you're, you know, you've got, you know, you're going through maybe your grandparents' uh, belongings after they're maybe moving into a retirement home or a nursing home or their demise, then 
don't just chuck that stuff out. Uh, take it to a, a local repository. Um, it's amazing. In this case, somehow these letters found their way from England all the way to California. They're now part of the Huntington Library in L.A. Uh, they were purchased probably in the 1960s for a fairly large sum of money because of the insights they give into social life in Britain. And um, thankfully, their family, some family members in the, in the 20th century did not simply look on this as just a garbage to be pitched, but valuable insight into their families. And uh, whoever might have kept it might have initially been kept it because it, it was able, they, they were able to trace their family all the way back into the 1600s. But somebody at some point realized there is a greater interest in, these, in this material. And to be honest, this is, this is the problem with historians like myself is especially when we're dealing with primary sources regularly, you know, a lot of historians of the ancient world are not dealing with primary sources. So when I learned patristics, that's where I cut my teeth, so to speak, on historical research. I never, I never looked at any actual manuscripts of Basil of Caesarea. I, I was just looking at secondary sources all the time, books uh, that have been printed in libraries. But once I moved into the 18th century, then I, I suddenly began to realize a whole different world, all of this manuscript material, and anything is helpful. So, for instance, when Jonathan Edwards' life was written up by George Marsden, in his massive study of, Mars, of, of Edwards' life, um, he used pretty heavily um, the, 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 the backsides of documents that Edwards wrote uh, his uh, books like The Freedom of the Will on. Because in the 1750s, where Edwards was in Stockbridge, he didn't have access to a lot of paper. And so he used the back of anything. What he didn't realize was that he was thereby preserving all kinds of details about the family economics. And so, for instance, Marsden was able to devote a whole page to discussing the fascination and love for chocolate that the Edwards family had. And that was based on, you know, probably a dozen uh, bills over a number of years that the Edwards family had paid for chocolate. They'd send to Boston, get these huge slabs of chocolate to be brought. And so we have some idea of the amount of chocolate this family was consuming in this period of time. And it gives us, a, gives us an added insight and into the humanity of Jonathan Edwards and his home. So the reality is this, and that this is a problem. Because, you know, how much do you keep? And, um, you know, when you've, when you've lived as a married couple for 20, 30 years, it is amazing what you accumulate. And, like, you wonder, like, where do we get all this stuff? And uh, some people are hoarders. And I guess every good historian has a bit of a hoarder in them because they're reluctant to throw these things out. Um, it's helpful if you can find a, a, an archive that'll take them. The problem is, in most cases, there people are too. It's too recent, and so maybe you need to educate your children and grandchildren in the value of what you're leaving them. Not only in terms of a life well lived, but also in terms of, you know, do not throw out my letters or my documents. Keep them, pass them on to the next generation, and then somebody down the road deposit them in a in a library. Um, I suspect one of the reasons why libraries value, say, letters from 200 years ago 
is that relatively few of them have survived. Uh, the reality is most of them get junked. So Jonathan Edwards, who must have written hundreds upon hundreds of letters, we have 275, basically. Do you keep uh, Do you keep a journal, or do you like print emails, or because most people don't send letters, we have email correspondence. Any of that that you do yourself? Yeah, I keep journals. So I've got 200, 300 journals. I've been keeping it since the early 70s. Um, I destroyed the ones before I was converted, which I wish I hadn't. I have letters I wrote to my wife before I was converted, so we have those. But yeah, I do. And then for a long time, I printed out emails, and I have piles of them which need to get filed. And um, if anybody out there listening would like to come and work as a file clerk, uh, I'd be beholden to them. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of kidding, but I'm not kidding. I don't know when I'm going to get around to filing this stuff. And then probably as I began to realize there's far more here than I can, I can print out uh, because I just don't have the room to file it, I, I began to save it. Um, I don't save everything, obviously. Um, but I do save important emails. What kind of thing do you put in a journal? Oh, I put everything. Um, you know, thoughts I have about this, that, or the other. Uh, I normally list what I'm reading in the scriptures. I wished I listed everything I read. I don't. Um, I do in the beginning of books. I always indicate when I read the book. When I Usually I, uh, I indicate where I bought the book. Um, and I have, I, I, I'm a big believer in marginal notes, so I write... I write in in my books. I know there are people who keep their books pristine. I don't. I, I don't buy that argument. Uh, my my library is a working library. Um, you know. Um, so, yeah. And then I uh, conversations I have. I use I use my journals for decision making. I'll write out things I'm trying to work through. Um, sometimes it's lists of things I have to do. Um, so yeah, that they're, they're an interesting grab bag of a variety of things. Well, I, that, that, that's great. I actually do a very similar thing, but I find it helpful because every, I know where things are. It's, I don't have multiple journals that are, I'm trying to figure out where, which ones for which it's, it's, everything's going in this notebook. Yep. And, uh, so that, that's helpful. Well, before we uh, get going, there's a few questions, uh, from uh, others. So I would like to ask those. Sure. So the first one's from Steve, and uh, it's sort of in two parts. So one is, how do you remember everything? And do you have any systems or disciplines of study, note-taking, or organization that help with this later research and recall? Um, yes. Well, no, I, I don't. Um, I, I think what I did was when I was a very young boy, I began to train my mind to memorize lists. So I memorize lists of the Roman emperors and their dates. Um, I memorize the entire succession of the English monarchy from 1066 and its dates. I don't have the dates as much now, but I can, I can probably give you a broad overview. Um, when I, uh, then I, learning languages, and I didn't mention this, but as an historian, you, you need to know a variety of languages. So. Languages, uh, I tend to follow the deductive method, which is basically memorizing large lists of vocab items, large lists of paradigms. And I think that encourages a mind given to memorization. 
Um, I also probably have, at least when it comes to history stuff, uh, some of uh, photographic memory. So I can, I can picture the covers of books and I can remember where they are in libraries. It's really weird. Um, <laughs> it is weird because, you know, I, I'll have a student I taught three years ago and I don't always remember his name. You know, maybe he, some of that I can I can blame on the fact I've got a class of a hundred students at Southern, and somebody else is doing all the grading. You know, one of my uh, uh, TAs, and so I'm I don't have that personal context, so I can blame it on that. But it is weird that I remember where a book is, what it looked like, but I can't remember the name of a student necessarily. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. So all that to say, I did have a system. I used to have a card filing system. I used to carry cards of things with me. Um, you could easily do this now on a um, on a mobile or a cell phone, but I don't do that anymore. Uh, the next question comes from Doug, and he asks, "What are some helpful connections uh, with scholars uh, that you've had across uh, disciplines?" Um, yes. So uh, uh, when I went to seminary, you obviously had to take courses from all the way, all of the classical subjects. So New New Testament, Old Testament. So Richard Longnecker, R.K. Harrison, Systematic Theology was Oliver Donovan. And then when you start to, uh, started to teach, I was the only historian. So I was forced to, to, if I was going to interact, I had to interact on Bible. Um, in fact, as a, as a budding church historian in a school where you only had three history courses required, Church History 1, Church History 2, which is the survey of the entirety of church history together, and then Baptist history. I had to teach Greek New Testament, and I had to teach English Bible. So um, as recently as probably three years, four years ago, I taught a course on 1 Corinthians. Uh, I've taught the pastorals last year. Um, and... Um, and then for years, I taught um, a Bible school, a Bible, um, a Bible class, uh, Sunday school. I'm doing that at our local church now, um, and um, I tend to, I tend to now mostly do them on um, history subjects. But for years, I I did Bible. I was involved in two very long Bible studies. One called we called it the Tuesday night Bible study. And uh, I taught that probably for the best part of 20 years every week. And then uh, more recently for about 10 years, I think called the reader circle. So I, I, these things forced you into the Bible, uh, which I think is great. I think every church historian needs to have a very thorough acquaintance with the scriptures because that's really the, is bread and butter in church history. That's what people are reading. And you need to know the scripture so you know when allusions are being made and arguments are being based on scripture texts and so on. Um, and I think church historians need to be very familiar with theological arguments too. Even if they're not primarily historical theologians, they need to know the flow of an argument. And therefore, it's helpful to have friends who are systematic theologians. I'm not a systematic theologian. I don't think that way. But it's certainly helpful to be able to interact uh, on areas of historical theology with a systematician. Uh, the next question comes from David. Uh, what are some hazards to avoid in the study of church history? Well, I think uh, there are two come to mind. One is 
to become an antiquarian. That is, you really wished you'd lived back in, you know, you really wished you were a Puritan. Or you wish you were in the revivals of the 18th century and you're a Wesleyan Methodist. Um, that, that's one. Uh, and you cease to realize you don't live in that. That's not where you live. And therefore, the study of church history cannot simply be only its reflection on the past. That's where we have to begin. And that's our initial foundation and focus. But we live in the present. And so church history has to have some bearing upon who we are today. The second is the danger, which it looks like everybody makes the error, of thinking that there was the golden age somewhere in the past. So, you know, for, for some people it's the Reformation. And everything's been downhill since then. Uh, for other people it's the Puritans. You know, or... I mean, for me, this is a danger because I tend to idolize, I, I could easily idolize the 18th century uh, Baptists and men like Andrew Fuller and um, Pierce and uh, Ryland and Carey and uh, John Fawcett and Caleb Evans and James Hinton, etc. Um, and I have to recognize, no, they, they were called to live in that period of time. They had, they had strengths we can learn from. They also had failings. Um, so that I think that's a twin danger. The second danger is the 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 uh, idolization of a period in the past. Really, it's what we call hagiography. And uh, so antiquarianism, uh, living in the past, we're not called to live in the past. We're called to live in the present, but we're called to know the past, so it can have it can help us in the present, and provide a foundation for the future. And then uh, the the whole tendency to hagiography. Uh, Chris asks, well, "What is your favorite place on Earth?" Well, I I am a home person, so I love I love Ontario, and it's taken me a long time to admit that. In some ways, when I first came to Canada, as I said last week, um, I I hated Canada. I really, you know, I didn't feel it had any history. I, I still I still wrestle to some degree with the history of Canada. Um, it's, 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 it lacks a richness to some degree, but it, it, it's, it, it, in Baptist life, for example, there is a thrilling story here, you know, when you think of Baptists in the Maritimes and in Ontario. But, um, uh, it, it, yeah, southern Ontario is just a fabulous, it's been a fabulous place to live. Outside of that, um, I love Ireland. If I didn't live here, I think I'd live in Ireland. Not I think I know I would. I can't think of another area of the world that I'd prefer to live in. Um, I'm very Irish. I don't sound Irish, but I'm very, very Irish in my, my thinking. Um, there's a real strain of melancholy in my life, which is very Irish. Um, on the other hand, um, there's an Irish sense of fun. Um, and I suspect... Um, I've got to the point now I'm, I'm relaxed enough, <laughs> which I think the Irish are. Um, I grew up in England, and I think the English can tend to be uptight about a lot of things, and I think I probably picked that up in my early years. Um, if it was not Ireland, um, I suspect there are probably parts of England that I would love, the Cotswolds. There are parts of the States that are beautiful, um, Charleston, South Carolina, 
Um, my wife and I really love South Florida, Fort Lauderdale. Uh, so we have a lot of good memories there. I have friends who can't stand Florida. Um, Monterey in California is an area that we've also grown to like. Um, anyway, that gives you a, a feel. And last question. Uh, if you could have tea with one person from church history outside of the Bible, uh, who would it be and why? Well, it would be Andrew Fuller. Yeah, because I've spent so much time reflecting on his life and his thought. And there's questions that are not answered by the primary sources we have that I'd love to ask him about. Um, yeah, it would, it would without a doubt it'd be Fuller. Um, well, thank you for your time. And I know I've been blessed from this conversation and I'm sure the listeners will too. Thank you very much. God bless. Beads Podcast is in partnership with H&E Publishing, a reformed and Canadian publishing house seeking to spread the steadfast love and faithfulness of Christ through the publication of church history, biblical spirituality, Christian living, and theology. Join us next time as we seek to see what God has done in the history of His people.